Ruth. There in the Old Testament, it is positioned firmly between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. Hope you'll look with me this morning as we begin a new sermon series. It's a series I've entitled, The Church, A Love Story. I do enjoy a good love story, don't you? I mean, just to be able to read and hear the story. Look, to hear a Cinderella-type tale told, it somehow speaks to us. I think I was introduced to the idea of love stories some years ago as I went to Miss Black's morning kindergarten class. Now, I date myself because back then, we only had morning class for kindergarten. We would get out around lunch. But we would go, and there we would learn stories like Cinderella and Snow White and those kind of love stories. Those were where I was introduced. Now, some also would probably say, well, that's where your love story began. And it certainly was. You may not know this, but that's where I met Leslie Neves, who became Leslie Bridges in Miss Black's kindergarten morning class. Now, I'll be honest with you. I was more infatuated with Miss Black back then than I was Leslie. Miss Black was the first love of my life. I loved her. So there was the love story there. But also, because it was just a morning class, I got to go home at lunch. Folks would pick me up, and they would take me to my Aunt Key's. Now, my Aunt Key was like my great-great-aunt. She was one of those people that you remember as always old. You could never imagine her young. But I loved going to my Aunt Key's. I would get there again about lunch, and she would feed me and all. And then we were supposed to kind of quiet down for the afternoon, settle into our positions. I would sit down in my chair. She would sit down in her recliner. And then I would be introduced to the ultimate love story. As sands through the hourglass, <laughs> so are the days of our lives. Some of you who are younger would not understand this, but in that day and time, there were all kinds of what we called soap operas on, on in the afternoons. So days of our lives, I got introduced to Roman and how he loved Marlena. And there was a guy named Stefano that would always, always try to interrupt the love story and insert himself. Now, he died several times and came back because that's the way soap operas did back then. But I would somehow, like, be introduced to all this stuff. And then, of course, after that, Another World came on, and then Santa Barbara came on. I had a whole afternoon. Now, I know some of you are looking like, I can't believe this. A kindergarten, I'm not saying it was a wholesome love story. I'm just telling you, that was where some of the, my first ideas of, like, people having relationships. Uh, it's not good. I know that. I'm in counseling still for some of this stuff. But love stories, everybody loves a love story. Everybody enjoys a love story. And when you look at the book of Ruth, it's just four chapters, just a small little book uh, here attaining some, some place in our canon. And it is a love story. But it is a love story that is filled with rich theological, historical, and practical counsel for us. It has such significant import for us. But it begins, it begins set against a desperate, dark background. 
And I want to introduce you to that this morning. As we think of a love story, but actually as it is set against a life of bitterness, when life turns bitter. I want you to look, if you will, as I read verse 1 of the first chapter of the book of Ruth, at least the beginning part here. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. The writer gives us this dark, desperate background. We see this book introduced. I mean, you're trying to think of a love story, but it's introduced in a dark way of saying that there was a famine in the land. This morning, I want to talk to you about when life turns bitter and when famine comes. And famine will come in our lives. As a matter of fact, when I read this, I understand that this is more than a physical famine. I'm I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments. But as I read the first words of this book, I am reminded that there is a spiritual famine that is in the land. A spiritual famine. The Bible says that this story is set in the day when the judges ruled. Now, the book of Judges is found again prior to this book, and it tells us a little bit about the history of Israel. After the people of God come out of Egypt, and they wander around for some 40 years, and then they find themselves there settling the land, they settle in into a conquest, an incomplete conquest, but a conquest. And what happens is you, you begin to have people that are spread against the, spread against the territory, And as they are there uh, around the territory, they begin to do what's right in their own eyes. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of Judges, that will be the central theme, is that the people of God will do what's right in their own eyes. There is no king in Israel. There's no individual that is leading them, that is trying to, to point them toward God and morality. So what do they do? They do what's right in their own eyes. It is a period of moral relativism. It is a period where it's just whatever you want to do, that's what you do. It is a spiritually dark time. It is a spiritual famine that you find. And what happens is this constant, this constant cycle. The people will sin because they do what's right in their own eyes. Then they will serve. They will go into bondage. And then they will cry out to God. There will be supplication. And what God will do is he will hear them and he will save them. He will deliver them from their bondage. And then for a little while in this cycle, there will be peace and silence. Only to bring forth sin once again. That's the book of Judges for you. So it's this bleak, dark time in the life of Israel. So here in the beginning, it's just, just to let you know, okay, it's spiritually, it's spiritually dark. There's not a lot going on where people are serving the Lord. Yes, there are those judges that God will appoint. Again, when he saves, the, saves his people, he will bring forth these local chieftains, these local theocratic military leaders who will push back the enemy and who will come and bring deliverance to the people of God. But it is a dark time. I believe it's early in the, 
in the judges period when this begins. Why would I say that? Well, later on we're going to be introduced to a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is the son of the prostitute Rahab who helps and assists Joshua in the conquest. Remember? So I believe this is early in the time of the judges. It's a dark time. Let me just say this. When we look around us in our culture, we know, we know that there's still that idea of you do what's right in your own eyes, right? The moral relativism. I mean, there's so many similarities and parallels to the book of Judges to our day. I mean, it's still like that. It's kind of like whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like doing, whatever you think is right. So life has turned bitter for the nation. There is spiritual famine, but there is also physical famine. The Bible says that there was a famine in the land. Now, I believe it's connected. I am convinced it is connected to their sin. Now, hear me out very clearly. I'm not saying every bad thing that happens to you is because of a a certain specific sin that you have committed, okay? Don't go out of here and say, well, yeah, you hear what the preacher said today? He said, the reason bad things have happened to me is because I've been doing some bad stuff. I didn't say that. Did I say that? Shake your head with me. No, I did not say that. We know from Jesus' time that as he spoke about the blind man and the, and the Pharisees and their theology, they were trying to determine, did he do something wrong? Did his parents do something wrong? Jesus reminded us it wasn't because of a specific sin. The reason some of these bad things, difficult times come is because of just the general nature of fallenness of our world. So I'm not saying to you that every sin is directly consequent, is subsequently uh, found because of our sins. That, that, that punishment comes. But I want you to see in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that I believe and am convinced that the famine of the land was directly a result of the people's rebellion. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses, as he's speaking for God, he says this, You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in. For the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. Why? Verse 45, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. In other words, there are times we face the consequences of our sins. And here in this text, I am convinced that the writer is trying to connect the physical famine to the spiritual famine. He says, this is why. It is is localized, obviously. It, 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 It is occurring where? In Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that town, haven't you? I'm going to come back to that a little later. But Bethlehem, what does Bethlehem mean? What does the name of the town mean? It literally means house of bread. Think of that. But if you were to go into the grocery stores, there would be nothing in the house of bread. It was totally, uh, it, it had been totally consumed. 
And this is an agrarian agricultural uh, land. And obviously, if the land did not produce, there was not vitality and livelihood. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Here we are on the cusp, uh, just on just on the brink of celebrating Thanksgiving, like next week. You already started cooking. Some of you have. We're hosting uh, Leslie's family Thanksgiving week here in Ruston. <laughs> I'll move on. If. Um, but we've already begun. Leslie's already started. I mean, all the blessings of Thanksgiving, we're about to celebrate the tremendous abundance that God gives us, the food that God gives us. It's hard to imagine the idea of a famine. I mean, you and I have been so blessed. But here, there is nothing to eat. There is nothing to put on the table. The shelves are empty. And it is because of the sin of the people of God. Again, it is localized because it says that this family, that they will go to Moab, where obviously there is not such famine. So it's just localized at the house of bread. And, and, and note verse 1 again, it says, and a certain man of Bethlehem. You see that the way it begins? It's just like a story, isn't it? And it just happened to be a certain guy. Just like if they were telling a story, a certain man from Bethlehem that experienced not only the spiritual famine of the land, but also the physical famine. And what did it lead to? It led to a personal famine that produced bitterness within the family. It says, This certain man from Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. So across the Jordan, across the Salt Sea, they are to, they're traveling over to Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So things are getting bad in Bethlehem. What do you do? You go to find bread. They go to Moab. They said, let's go over. We've heard Moab's got bread. The stores are open. Let's go over to Moab. Elimelech goes to dwell in that country. It should remind you of Genesis chapter 12. That same word for dwell or or sojourn is the same word that's used to describe Abraham or Abram as he experiences famine and he goes down into Egypt. I'm going to be honest with you. Moab and Egypt, when you talk about their spiritual position, they're not far apart. Moab, why in the world would he go to Moab? Again, I know there's bread, but think about the relationship of the people of God with the Moabites. I mean, when you read the story of Moab, it is sordid, to say the least. How was it founded? It was founded because of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. That's how it was begun. And then if you look through the history of the Israelites and the Moabites, you will find find intense enemies. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, they wanted, needed 
water, and food. And the Moabites refused. As a matter of fact, at one point, you remember the Moabite king, Balak. You remember him? He, 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 he hired this preacher boy, this prophet named Balaam. You remember Balaam? Donkey talked to him. Donkey and some of you are like, donkey talk. What are you talking about? Go back and read. It's in the Bible. Balak, he hires Balaam. And when he hires Balaam, he says, I need you to curse the people of Israel. So Balaam stands to curse the people of Israel. He curses him, curses, or is standing to curse them once. And what happens? He ends up blessing them. Second time, he stands to curse them. What does he do? He blesses them. Third time, what happens? He blesses them. And each time the king says, I paid you to curse them and you have blessed them. Because get this, th this is a sermon for another day, but God can bring blessing out of cursing any day. Isn't that awesome? When the world stands to curse you, God will stand to bless you. Because God's the one in charge. But here he is, nonetheless, trying to curse the people of God. This standing against the people of Israel, it led God to speak through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, that said, The Moabites will not come into the assembly of God at least for ten generations. That's strong, isn't it? They're not to have fellowship. Again, when you go back to the story, they actually, the Moabites had, they had seduced the Israelites. They had made them compromise sexually and spiritually. And they were to be avoided. Not because of their ethnicity, but because of their religion. Because they served other gods. More recently in Judges chapter 3, a king named Eglon had come against the people of God. And Ehud, the judge, had stood and brought deliverance. So let me ask you this question. Why is Elimelech taking his family to Moab? Again, somebody said, wait, there's bread. You got to eat. Do you think it's worth taking your family to a pagan land with pagan culture, with pagan gods, just so that you can get some bread? Well, now, come on, Reggie. You got to eat. You got to eat. You got to have a piece of bread. Let me just say something especially to those of you who are husbands and dads in this place. You and I need to be just as concerned about the spiritual vitality of our family as we are the physical vitality of our family. Because I'm going to tell you what, we can rationalize just about anything. Well, you, you got to eat, so just go over to Moab. I mean, God... God's not going to hold that. What did God say? God said not to have association with the Moabites. God had clearly said that. Yeah, but God will understand. Do you hear this kind of conversation taking, part all, uh, taking place all the time? Like where, well, we know that's what God said, or we know, we know that's what it says in the Bible, but you know, God would cer certainly understand. I'm going to tell you, if God speaks to you and says to you as a dad or a husband, this is what you should do and this is what you should not do, you need to follow his word. And stop trying to reason. Well, you know, my family, they just needed extra money, so that's the reason I, I, I had to move them here or I had to start working this time or I had to do this. 
Friends, there are some things more important than your material progress. Why did he go to Moab? He went to Moab for, for a livelihood. Some would say for success, for prosperity. He had gone to Moab to eat their bread. And yet he was in the house of bread. And let me say this, Elimelech. Look at his name. If you were to break his name down, you know what it means? God is my king. El, see that first part, which is God. El, that I, my, my God, Malak, he is my king. So if God is your king, God can provide for you in Bethlehem just as well as he could in Moab. Right? God, is there any indication? Is there any indication here there's repentance? Is there any indication there's petition? Is there any indication that he cried out to God and said, God, I am sorry for what we have done. And God, I am asking you to provide. Is there any indication? No. Not any indication whatsoever. He just says, you know what? I need to take care of this and I'm going to Moab. And instead of crying out to God, he decided he could provide for his family on his own. Friends, listen again. You and I can never provide for our family on our own, not ultimately. You and I stand in the need of God. That is the reason we're going to get down and thank him in the next week or two. It's the reason we should be thanking him now. Because you and I could not provide for our families unless God had given us exactly what we needed. God, if he had not provided for me the ability to stand before you and do what I'm doing today, I would not be able to do this. If God had not given me breath this morning when I got out of bed, do you? No. I am dependent upon him for everything. And some of us, dads, again, I hate to, I hate to really just knock you this but dads this is just me too dads husbands we ought not to just say god is my king with our mouths we need to live as god is our king daily he bore the name he just didn't walk according to faith he didn't walk according to the sovereignty of god folks how many how many of us today are leading our families in the wrong ways? And how many of us are exposing them to the danger of a pagan territory? There's a lot of turning and repenting that you find in this passage. But you don't find a whole lot of repentance that leads people back to God. Let me, let me show you. That there is the spiritual, physical famine. There's the personal famine. Elimelech simply does not seek the king that he has, is supposed to put his faith in. And then look what happens. It, it is a tragic story. Again, it says that he takes his wife, Naomi, and the two sons, Malan and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, and they remain in the country of Moab. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left. 
That's tough, folks. That's tough. Don't get lost that, oh, this is a story that was so long ago. And don't get lost and don't, don't see the pain. That's, don't miss the pain that's here in this passage. She lost her husband. Elimelech dies. I've walked through a lot of difficult moments with people. I've walked with people who've lost their spouse. And it's tough. Life can turn real bitter sometimes. So quickly. Naomi loses her husband. And then it says in verse 4, Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. So it says that the two boys marry Moabite girls. Now, folks, this isn't supposed to be something that's very positive. They marry Moabite girls. Did I tell you about the enmity between the Israelites and the Moabites? But this is kind of what I've learned. If you, if you live next to the, or if you stand next to the tree, you're probably going to eat of the tree. And if you live in Moab, you're probably going to have kids that marry Moabites. Elimelech, did you ever think about that? Did you ever think about when you're bringing your kids over here that your kids are probably going to end up marrying Moabites? I'm going to tell you, I believe Naomi's heart was grieved here. It was bitter. I, listen, should we be concerned about whom our children marry? Yes. Yes. It's the reason I got out of Baton Rouge. <laughs> Tip my hat to the LSU fans. Yes. We should be concerned about who our kids marry. You want, I, I'm proud Abigail's not here today because I would sure embarrass her probably. You want to date my daughter? I love what one preacher said. You date me first. Take me out for some coffee. Let's go visit. Yes, I'm concerned about who my kids marry. You should be concerned about who your kids marry. And see, look, Elimelech was so worried about getting a piece of bread, he, he, he forfeited the idea. He, he gave away the idea of concern of who his boys would marry. Now, I know we're looking at Ruth, and we're going to talk about Ruth, but at this point, just understand, this is not good. God uses things that aren't good, but this is not good. And you and I need to be concerned. I mean, life is turning so bitter. You're thinking, again, how could this turn out to a good love story? Because all I'm reading about here in this first chapter is famine and death and all these things. As a matter of fact, Warren Wearsby says this chapter of Ruth is, should be called the weeping chapter. Because it is so difficult. And now it says that, it says Naomi's boys, 
they marry Moabitess, and they dwell there 10 years. And then look at verse 5. Man, I know some of you are saying, you got to move on, preacher. I can't take all this. But look at it. Both Malon and Kilion, they also die. Malon's name means weakling or sickly. That's what the name means. And maybe it always faced difficulties. Maybe always had. Kilion, that name means failure or to come to an end. I'm be honest with you. I'm not sure you ought to marry somebody named Kilion. <laughs> failure, yeah. But both of those names remind us and show us that something very difficult probably is on the horizon. And verse 5 says they die. So the, the woman survived her two sons and her husband. I say this often to people who've lost children. There are all kinds of losses. And I told you the deep pain of losing a spouse. I've seen the deep pain of losing a parent. I've seen the deep pain of losing friends. But there is a unique wound in people's hearts when they lose a child. I don't care if the child is six or 60. It is not the natural order of life. It is so tough. It's one of the most difficult times for me in my ministry when I stand with those families and I see these moments and these, these times. Naomi loses her boys. She has no grandchildren. There have been no grandchildren born in these 10 years. And I want you to hear now from Naomi with this setting. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Listen, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Do you hear what she's saying? She says, it's like the Lord has turned against me. Life is bitter. Life 
has turned tragic. And it's as though God himself is standing against me. Folks, there are times in some of our lives where we may feel like God's just turned against us. Times when it seems like he's abandoned us. When we go through such loss and such pain. Later on, verse 19, it says, Ruth and Naomi, they come to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? The words that excited is what is translated here. It's probably more like they were stirred up. They murmured among themselves. They were trying to figure out. It's been 10, I mean, it, it, it's been 10 years, right? I mean, now she comes back. Can you imagine how all of this has taken a toll on her physical appearance? Can you imagine how heavy she must feel as she walks back into Bethlehem? Ten years later, and they're like, is this, is this Naomi? Is this the one that left? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi means pleasant, sweet. She said, life has not been pleasant for me. Life is not sweet. As a matter of fact, you need to call me Mara, or Mara, which means bitterness. Life has turned bitter. See, I love to come to church and just talk about good things. <laughs> I love to just give some encouragement. I, I just, but you know what? Sometimes we need to get real with one another. We need to help one another face the bitterness that comes in life. Because bitterness can invade God's people. It can seem again that life has turned bitter toward us. But let me, let me remind you of these two things real quickly before we leave. When life turns bitter, you don't forget this. God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. God is still king. You remember that name, Elimelech? My God is king. It is reality. It is truth. What do you mean by that? I mean the same God who brought famine is the same God who can bring feast. The same God who has seen you through difficulty is the same God that can bring joy back into your life. You don't believe it? Read all of Ruth because Naomi's going to experience a new vitality in her life. She's going to see God working because God is always at work. God can restock the shelves of Bethlehem. And he will. If she had only known that earlier, notice she hears from Moab, she hears that Bethlehem has food again. And this wasn't because somebody Facebooked about it. It wasn't because somebody texted her to let her know. In other words, they had had bread for quite a while over in Bethlehem. 
before she even got word. If she had been in Bethlehem, she had already known the feast. But in all the time, God was working. You don't doubt for a minute that he is active in your life, active in history itself. He is at work doing a thousand things that you and I could never see and know. Oh, if I could go back and look at Job again. God had a plan, did he not? Job didn't know what was going on. Job did not know. I'm convinced that Job didn't know what was going on until he got before Jesus Christ one day. But God knew what he was doing. God was working. God is working here. As, as, as someone has said, the worst of times are not wasted. They are not wasted. They are not wasted globally, historically, or personally. You and I, when we complain about the culture, just know this. God can still work even though our culture seems to be going in its own way. Those of us who look around and we see difficulties in our lives personally, God is still working. He can take those difficult things and work them together, weave them together for something that is good and glorious. Let me just remind you, one of the reasons Ruth is positioned between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, one of the reasons is to remind us how we get the lineage of King David. Oh yeah, I've read the end of the book. What's this about? It's going to remind us how we get to King David. Oh yeah, Ruth, she has no type of lineage to, she thinks to continue. But God's going to work. God's going to show his sovereignty. And God's going to bring forth the lineage of King David. So in bitter times, you just remember God's still sovereign. He's still working. You may not be able to see it, but he's still working. I love this. In bitter times, God is still Savior. He's still Savior. Man, I don't have time. Again, I don't know. Leslie, you're going, when you write this, you're going to have to start shortening these things just a little bit. But look at this, verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices, wept again. Orpah, by the way, that's who Oprah Winfrey's named after. They just, it is, seriously. Kosciuszko, Mississippi, they just kind of mixed it. It is. It is. So me, go Google me on that. See if you am not right. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and, but Ruth clung to her. In other words, Orpah was just emotional. Ruth was committed. You see those kind of believers today, by the way. They start well, but they don't finish. Ruth clung to her. And what did she say? Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Man, that's a great evangelistic strategy Naomi's using. <laughs> hey, she left. You ought to leave too. She went back to her gods. Mm. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me. And more also is anything but death parts you and me. Beautiful words. You will not find many more beautiful words in all of literature. Some of you used it at your wedding. Yeah, a few of you did. Can you imagine saying these words to your mama-in-law? 
Did I mention mine's coming Thanksgiving week? <laughs> hey, this is her conversion. Don't, don't miss this. This is where she says, I'm accepting the covenant of your God. I'm coming into your people. I'm coming in. This is conversion. In the middle of all of this, in the middle of all this darkness, in the middle of all this tragedy, Ruth comes to salvation in Yahweh God. I'm going to tell you, that makes me so happy to know that all the stuff that's going on around us, all the tragedies, all the difficulties, God is still Savior. And God still works in people's hearts and lives. There's the salvation of Ruth. And guess what? Because of this and because of what's going to happen, there's going to be the salvation of Naomi. God is going to work through Ruth and going to work through the situation to actually save Naomi. Because remember, in this time, in this day, widows in particular were so vulnerable. They, they had no livelihood. But there's going to be salvation brought to Naomi. Ruth, whose name means something like friend or irrigation, she will bring vitality. She will be the faithful companion. And oh yeah, remember that word Bethlehem? God is bringing salvation to the world, specifically to us as the church, the people of God. Because if I remember right, Bethlehem was the place that the God-man was born. The one we call Jesus, right? So even in Ruth, even in Ruth, a thousand, twelve hundred years before, maybe thirteen hundred years before, the birth of Jesus that we're going to celebrate before long, God was working for salvation. He was working for yours and mine. Ruth is about the work of God, as Piper said, in the darkest of times to prepare the world for the glories of Jesus Christ. In the most bitter moments of your life, when life turns bitter, God is still sovereign and God is still Savior. You got to cling to it. You got to cling to it. So let me ask you, has life been bitter for you? Are you in a bitter moment right now? Is it tragic? It's okay, folks. We have these moments. Let me ask this. Is it because you have forsaken the fellowship of God? It may not be. I'm not saying it is. But if it is, what do you need to do? You need to come to him and repent. Guys, fathers, husbands, have you contributed to the bitterness in your family because you've moved your family to Moab? Do you need to repent? Do you need to come back to Bethlehem? Folks, today, will we trust in his sovereignty and his salvation when life turns bitter? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. And God, there are tough days in, in our lives. As we think about life, it's, it's not always the most pleasant and joyful. God, there are so many days when we sorrow and we weep. But God, we thank you that we can place our absolute faith and trust in you that you are going to work all things out 
for our good and for your glory. I thank you that you still work the miracle of salvation in people's hearts and lives in difficult times. And God, I'm so proud, I'm so grateful to know that joy does come in the morning. God, speak to us this morning in this moment of invitation and commitment. Help us to get some things right. Help us to seek you, to follow you, to, to run to you. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?